Hi, I'm Shivani Podar. I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, Fashion House High Street Essentials. We run two brands, Fabelli and India. And I'm very, very excited to be uh, here today with Akshay and all of you. It's the year 2011. Shivani Poddar is a young and successful working professional in her early 20s. She's working with an investment bank helping startups to raise funds. And then she realizes that there is no easy way for her to buy smart office wear online or even offline. This insight led to the birth of Fab Alley, which is today among the leading D2C fashion brands in India. In this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, immerse yourself in the decade-long journey of building a large D2C fashion business, starting from an era when fundraising was next to impossible and founders literally had to survive each day with nothing but their grit and hustle. Your host Akshay Dutt interviews Shivani Poddar, the founder of Fab Alley, about this roller coaster ride and in the process learns about what makes a D2C fashion business scale up. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app to go behind the headlines and hear the real stories of making a startup scale up. So I think my, uh, you know, uh, for, for those few years, all I wanted to do was become an investment banker, which I did. So I worked with a vendors and, uh, you know, was a very happy, uh, you know, banker there. But I think uh, always... So what were you doing exactly? Like uh, m I was, yeah, the m side, the m side. And fundraise, uh, you know, at that time in the country, since 2010, 11, 12, uh, early years, they were also early years generally, right? So there was something happening in tech, little bit e-commerce had started coming up. But otherwise, uh, you know, some large deals, but nothing, there's a little, there's no ecosystem like it is today. So, so mostly on the m side at that point. So while, you know, while I was, you know, of course, a banker and I was actually, uh, even with the, you know, the super strenuous, crazy lifestyle that uh, that investment banking has, I was quite, uh, I think I was quite happy. And uh, that's who I am. I, you know, I like working long hours. I like working weekends. So I, you know, it was something that kind of quite energized me and uh, always thought that, you know, till I become an entrepreneur, which in my mind was at least, say, 10 years, uh, you know, post. Uh, you know, at that point, I would uh, I would continue to do banking, and uh, that's 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 where I was. And then uh, you know, one day, me and my uh, co-founder and we we started talking, and we were like, you know, uh, you were like young. work friends or like how did we you? Were, no, we were no, we were we were friends since we were kids. So you know, we kind of grew up together, went to the same school, lived in Delhi. Uh, so essentially, so we we knew each other. We were friends uh, for a very long time. And we, we were actually really as young working professionals. I was in Bombay. She was in Bangalore at that time. As as young professionals really just started talking like, where is fashion in this country? And that was the first line and the first conversation as consumers to say that, you know, where do we shop from? We want to look good. We have a general kind of sense of, you know, what's happening around the world. Uh, but in India, nothing is available. And, and, and that was the first need that we identified. Nothing to do from a business point of view. But I've never ever thought that I'd be a fashion entrepreneur. Absolutely no sense of fashion design. And, you know, everybody asks me, oh, you're a designer. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I have absolutely no sense of design, I think. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think uh, that was that was the first uh, kind of conversation. And uh, the more uh, the more I thought about it over those few months, and, you know, I was I started working on e-commerce transactions by then uh, at Avendis. 
and uh, the more I would meet entrepreneurs and people who are young people like 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 me, right? Like mid twenties, late twenties. What kind of people were you meeting? Did you meet Falguri Nair by any chance? Like I didn't. Falguri. I didn't actually okay. didn't meet her. <laughs> yeah. But these were mm. uh, you know some of those companies actually don't exist today. But these were uh, you know a lot of everybody was starting out, right? 2012, 13, like you know those years. I think a lot of companies were just starting. Those that don't exist and do exist today, mostly those one of them started in that. That three four year uh, you know range. So, like Clovia also started around that time, I guess. Clovia so started then in um, fashion. There were players like Yep Me, so we talked. Fashion about and you also. Were... Fashion mm-hmm. and you. That was crazy. That was crazy. Lots of companies. Sugar started then. So I mean, lots of companies had started. You know, different different sectors. Lenskart, First Cry. I mean, you name it, and you'll see that the timing is it, it's all in those two three years. So essentially, so everybody wanted to do something, realized that probably there is, you know, something getting built and there was so much energy in just thinking that it's new and, you know, and you, we were also seeing parallels at that time, right? So, for example, in fashion in UK, there were companies like Boohoo ASOS. Those had already seen seven, eight years and they were, you know, so while in India, it was very new. But globally, this was, where they were at 2003, 4, 5, we, were, we, we had reached that point. So I think even for me, while I was doing a lot of comp work and I was working on transactions, I could see that globally this is this is happening. And it's a matter of time that, you know, we're going to kind of India is going to take it on as well. So, so yeah, so, you know, just those conversations, like I said, never with the intent that, oh, now I want to be a fashion entrepreneur because I couldn't even imagine. But uh, just those, uh, those, those, you know, those conversations with, with Tanvi, it, you know, as again, I started kind of just drawing up a business plan. That's all that I knew how to do. I think I went this, so I started doing that. And also, I started talking to women, I think, actually. So I was just, you know, the thought was to say that, like, you know, I, I, I knew so many people in my ecosystem. And I'm like, where are you guys shopping from? And uh, if it's if it's all abroad, right? If it's all to say that I either order from resource or I shop only when I travel. Uh, then the thought was to say that, why aren't we doing enough in India? So, so what is this ASOPs? Sorry, I've not heard of this. These are global, uh, it's, it's a UK-based, uh, you know, fashion marketplace. And uh, today in India, of course, there's a lot more fashion available. But when you go back 10 years, like 9, 10 years, there was nothing. Like nothing is nothing. You had like one or two brands, you had no e-commerce. So it was like a pretty terrible market. And the thing that I realized actually that was changing was that there were a lot more women who were working. And before, before Avendus, I was in Levers, HUL. And uh, there, you know, maybe 25-30% or more of our office were women who were in their 20s, 30s, very sharp, working, had income, uh, you know, disposable income, etc. When I started realizing that, and even at Avendus, where, you know, usually in financial services, you don't see a lot of women. But even there, I would like to so if more women work, they'll want fashion. Like that is 100% given and they'll have income to do that. So yeah, so I was just, I spent about six, four, five months, I think, just thinking because I, you know, leaving a, a, a good career at Avendus was, 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 was slightly kind of risky. And I was like, you know, does it make sense? And, and I think the thing that really triggered and pushed me was to say that, you know, if I can't do it now at 25, I don't think after 10 years with so much baggage, with a family, with all of that, I'd probably not have the balls to do it then. So I was like, you know, if I have an idea, uh, just, just do it now. <laughs> and you were married at that time? I wasn't married. I was, in fact, I, I didn't have any obligations. I was not married. I was, uh, I was still dating, uh, who, uh, you know, the guy who's my husband now. And uh, so we were, we were, we've been together for a long time. So I just told him that, you know, I need to shift to Delhi and I need to do it. And if it doesn't work, then two years, I'll, I'll be back. So uh, did you uh, 
what was the plan? Did you want to like curate clothes which, let's say, uh, unorganized from the unorganized market, make them available online? Was that the plan, or did you actually want to do design, manufacture, sell, like the whole? Yeah, so I I have to now answer very differently from what I usually answer when I meet investors. So I'm going to tell you what I was actually thinking at that time. So 2012, I think actually I decided I want to do something in fashion, and that's all that I knew because I can make I could have made business plan which I did, but they I mean there was no supply at that time. I mean there was it was super unorganized, no idea what to do. There was no demand on e-commerce also at that time. And retail I couldn't even think about because we were bootstrapped, didn't have money, twenty lakhs investment, you know. So essentially that. So so that's all that I I genuinely just knew that when I shifted to Delhi to start. And then basically the the easiest thing to start was uh, was with accessories, which is jewelry, bags, and this was on also traded because you know with clothing there's a lot of sizing that needs to be you know figured and kind of done. With accessories, it's a no size single piece kind of a place. So I knew that fundamentally probably easiest to do it. They like figure out some of the other things. And also as a person, I mean generally very action oriented. So I can't sit and be like, oh wait two years, let me think. Then I, you know, do something. So I have like four months. Let's get, get a website. Let's get some products. Let's get started, and we'll figure it out along the way. So that was the first business. It was it was just accessories. Actually, just on our website it was called fabali dot com, which is our parent brand even now. And uh, so we were just a single website. There were no marketplaces at that time. Uh, Mintra had just started with a closed marketplace. Jabong uh, again very new, uh, but that's it. So there was nowhere else. So we just started with with the website and a little bit performance marketing. We started doing Facebook ads, uh, started spreading the word, and even things like I would, you know, I would go to exhibitions because I was like, you know, once I take a target for a month, so it was like, say, I have to do ten lakhs this month, just have to do it. So we would just like we would go to exhibitions, stand all day, and uh, do whenever whenever we could. So those were the that was probably those were the first uh, maybe even year and a half, two years. Okay, so this was like artificial jewelry and bangles and stuff like that. Correct. So jewelry, bags, shoes, all all kinds of accessories. But you know, even after we launched, within seven eight months of launching accessories, I I did figure that you know it's not it's not going to be a large business. And this is not why is that? that because uh, the so so one of the demands for those categories at that point was not enough. Uh, it was it was it was more unorganized. There were one or two organized players. And also, I've, and apparel is, of course, you know, 20x the size of accessories in India, especially. Uh, so I was so very early. I was like, you know, if we need to make this big, we need to crack the apparel supply chain, which is very complicated. So we said, so that's when after seven, eight months itself, I was like, you know, we need to get into apparel. It'll take us time. We'll make mistakes. But that is what we need to build if you want to build for the next 30, 40 years and you want to build a large company. So I think those learnings, kind of that realization happened early. And we started pivoting from 2013-14 and started getting into a panel more and more. And then from there, of course, there was no looking back. So uh, by uh, like by, by the end of that first year, what kind of top line were you doing with just the accessory business? Yeah, so first year we did about three crores. And this is in about six months uh, that year because we didn't get a full financial year. And uh, and I was, uh, you know, of course, it was not a big sum, but it was still, uh, you know, we, we were okay. I think we were just getting started. No, it's, it's a phenomenal sum for uh, like a completely bootstrap, which is... Yeah, yeah, at that time, we didn't have money. And actually, the next year after that, actually, we did 15 crores with, again, no money. Wow. And, uh, and I think this was just by shifting gears from uh, from accessories to apparel and 
like I said, no money, just uh, just basic investment from uh, Tanvi and me, and uh, yeah, that was the that was the first first bit. But I think we found the right right space uh, early on. I think that's what I would think that that that, that was helpful. Yeah, tell me the journey of uh, the apparel launch. Like, you know, how did you like? Did you want to curate or did you want to design, build, sell? So we've never been in the curation model. Uh, again, actually, the thought's been you can't um, you know build something uh, you know meaningful uh, if you do what everybody else is doing, which means if I curate, anybody can curate, right? I you know it's very difficult to kind of build differentiation unless you're building a marketplace. So for a brand, it's almost impossible. So never wanted to curate, always wanted to design. Now Tanvi, we neither of us were designers because we are both business graduates. And what uh, so was Tanvi's background? She uh, she comes from a marketing background. So she, after doing her MBA from Micah, she used to work. She was working with Titan as a brand manager. So both. Of so she understood pretty, consumer marketing. She understood the consumer side and also was a better was also also always better at design uh, than I was. So what this is what we did. So we said we want to launch the freestyles. Uh, no idea how to design. Of course, we didn't know how to make a pattern or sketch or do all of those things. So we bought 50 products from exactly the company I told you, ASOS. So we bought 50, 50 garments and we copied them. And we said that let's let's make the pattern uh, to the best of our ability. Uh, we went to the fabric market in Delhi, uh, picked up fabrics that were available, 100 meters basically, and married to... The Chandni Chowk uh, you went. Yeah, Chandni Chowk, Nehru Place, Gandhi Nagar. We would go ourselves, we would walk on fabrics. It's, you know, it's, it's a crazy place. So we bought that and we married the two. And I would pretty much sit at the, the factories where the stitching is done. And this is, now you have to imagine, right, tailors. There's no, this is not like a great job where you're sitting in an office. So 20, 30 tailors and... Uh, and this was your parents? Quickly, like they were running an export house, right? This wasn't, this wasn't my parents' factory. These were some local job work units that, uh, you okay. know, in the Lloyd But you know, your parents would have at least given you that uh, market knowledge yeah, of where to get things done. Us. Where Absolutely. to source from? Yes. Support us. Where to source from? Where to go? And I think that support in the first few years and even even till date continues to kind of be invaluable. So um, so yeah, so they did support us, but we had to get the job done, right? So so I would uh, go and just stand there for days and days and weeks and just kind of get the production done. And that, those were the first. So we launched exactly fifty styles, and those were the first fifty styles, which were designs from ASOS fabrics from Chandni Chowk on Hero Place, and uh, combined the two. And uh, when we launched that, which was, uh, you know, around April 2013, and within, and, you know, while for accessories, if we were getting like maybe 20 orders a day or 30 orders a day, like the minute we shifted to apparel, it became like say 70 or 80 or 100. And which is how we saw the, the growth, right? Within within that one year. Yeah, and, what and kind we, of clothes were you selling? Like t-shirts, shirts, or formal wear? Western wear. Western wear, tops, dresses, more more casual from a you know women's web like smart casuals so, smart casuals yeah so we did that and yeah and that was the first lot and then from there uh, you know we we just knew this is it and we have to do more of this uh, how did you uh, like, like uh, I'm guessing the key thing here is uh, scaling up supply right like uh, because I, you also realize that uh, India doesn't have that supply in place the demand is there more women are working uh, so, how did you scale up supply? Like, am I right in my understanding that supply was the key challenge to solve? So, I think actually it was both ways because demand for e-com while retail was about ninety nine point nine percent, you know, of, of of the channel at that time, like of the overall segment. 
online was very small. So even from a demand point of view, you had to tell women to come online and shop, right? Because you know you you weren't sure of your sizes. Returns were not half as smooth as they are today. So you had to really educate them as to why they should go online and buy at all and not go the the closest store. And that was something that you know it took us a lot of kind of marketing push, branding in a certain way, talking to the consumer to be able to tell them that you don't like the product, we'll take it back, right? And but at least you know go and try it. So that is something that I think even on the demand side, and hence there was there was of course a lot of a lot that had to be done. But supply, yes, I think there was you know again ecosystem was poor. Like you know people they, there was nothing called the domestic a large domestic market. People would usually everybody in Noida they were exporters. And I have I probably met hundreds, and they would be like they wouldn't even entertain us. They would be like, you know, if you want to make like fifty pieces per garment, please, you know, yeah, just like yeah, get out yeah. of my office. Right it's it's too small. Easy. Like they have a bit of a order quantity minimum, requirement. Minimum of thousands of pieces per style, and they're like, you know, you're looking at fifteen. There's there's no way, right? And then you know, we were we were also young. They would look at uh, Tanvi and me typically and be like, you know, you young girls, you know, why <laughs> are you wasting our time? And that is something that I have heard for, and I, I continue to hear that actually. So that's something that I've heard for so many years that, you know, they'd look at me and they would be like, you know, I, I, I don't think we can, you know, uh, you know, we don't sell here. This is not a retail shop. Like so many, so many, there would be places I would go to say in Surat or these kind of places. And they would, they would actually tell me and my team who were all kind of young girls. Uh, to be like you know, this is we don't retail here. This is not a wholesale. This is a wholesale shop. So please, ma'am, leave. And then yeah. explain the business to them that we're not here to shop. So I think so. Those those kind of things, uh, you know, like I said, continues to happen. But I think so it, was, it was. I'm guessing like a very male dominated kind of an industry. It is. Of it these is. I mean, you, you people who make the garments. See, yeah, you will very rarely see a woman running a, a factory. I mean, it's just not that business. Or even on the fabric side, all all the large people or all everybody who supplies fabric, they one hundred percent male. Like that's even the tailors would all be males only. Sorry, even the tailors would all be males. Like the people working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody. So the whole ecosystem. And you know, it's such a funny incident that you know, once worked five six years back, I went to Surat, which is basically the hub for uh, fabrics in India. And, um, you know, I was there and there were lots of, there are these buildings which have lots of uh, wholesale kind of garment shops. And, uh, you know, me and another two colleagues, so three of us, uh, you know, we were kind of walking through. And I, I actually, we would have entered 50 stores and probably from every store we heard, this is not a retail store. This is not a <laughs> store. The moment you saw women walking, they thought you're shopping. And women, they're like, you know, they're here for shopping. And in that, and in those buildings where they were like, maybe... 5,000 men in each building, there were, I didn't see a single woman, except the three of us. And we from Delhi, we of course, you know, just kind of the way we are, the way we dress, was, and they were like amazed. And then one of our vendors told us, let me, let me send like two bodyguards with you guys because you can't enter these places without men. And I was, I was amazed. And I think from then till now, it's just been five, six years. I, I do see a difference still in terms of how they kind of treat and respect women. But so many years, I was amazed that this can happen. So how did you uh, like set up your, like how did that one order of 50, which you kind of like bootstrapped it and did it very manually, how did that become into a, like a well-oiled machinery? Like did you... Yeah, so I can... Sorry, go on, actually. Yeah, like did you set up your own manufacturing or did you set up a reliable part chain of suppliers and vendors and third-party manufacturers? Or like, you know, how did that become a well-oiled machine with? 
Yeah, so I think we're starting essentially, you know, so in fashion, how it works is that we have to kind of churn out new designs every month. So it's not that, you know, you make 10 styles or make 10, you know, kind of products from a lifestyle perspective or, you know, 10 face creams and then you can sell it for like two years. So, so we, so once we identified the styles that were working, we said that already every month we'll make 30, 40, 50, 80, depending on uh, the season. Uh, we'll keep kind of making those styles. And initially for a long time, those styles were made based on the same model, which means we were ordering clothes as references because we could afford to get our own tailors and our own pattern masters, etc. So we would be like, let's order, order those clothes. Let's make the fabric. So, so, so we continue to kind of focus on this machinery, which we, which we could see was getting a little bit better and better. Also, since our own volumes were increasing, like, so for example, earlier I could only make 20 pieces per style. I could now make 50 and 80. So just by virtue of that, suddenly people started becoming maybe a little bit more interested than they were. Plus, of course, my parents, and they were in the garment business. So we, you know, I really requested them if they could kind of support us for the first three, four years and get like 20, 30 machines just for us. That would be helpful. So as a combination of these two, three things, I think those were the... That, that was the first, uh, the, the, how we kind of set things up. <clears throat> but we never really ever set up our own manufacturing. Because again, something that I understood was that, you know, if I'm in the business, like if I'm in the retail business, I don't want to be in the manufacturing business. Because they're generally, they're, they're two different businesses. The way they are, absolutely. So the back end, if you have to do that, and I have to manage like, you know, today maybe we've got 3,000, 4,000 tailors for to manage that. Then cannot be doing, you know, cannot be selling, you know, at the front end of the business that we're in. So I think never kind of fully set up the back end, except we found enough people who wanted to work with us over time. And every year, actually, we were doubling, right? So, I mean, I think also for a lot of vendors, I would just sit with them and tell them that this is our journey. We're starting and, you know, support us, right? If today you're giving us 500 meters, tomorrow it's going to become a few thousand. There are some vendors who've been with us for years now, just because, you know, at that point they supported us. And now there's such high loyalty that they, they've been with us for in this entire journey of us, us growing. So I think I've been fortunate to find those people fortunate that my parents were there to support. And I think, like I said, as a combination, we were, we would start, we could, we were able to scale. What are the machines that you're talking about that you, what is the, I mean, where do machines come in? I, I thought it was tailors making clothes, right? Like, yeah. So tailors, hem stitching machine. So it's ah, that machine. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. So those okay. machines, and then there are a bunch of other tools that you need for garmentry. So it's a combination mm. of all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. So you basically work with a lot of small shops, uh, which have 20, 30, 50 tailors who... Yes, will... actually, it's like whoever okay. wants to work with us. So they could even have five machines. I would be like, you want to work with us? Please do. Right? Because, you know, when you were in that place, and our demand was probably like three or four eggs of our supply for a very long time in 2014, 15, because we were, you know, because we were making small lots, it was very difficult to find people to work with us quality sizing apparel is very very complicated right from a, from a, the fits have to be perfect um so essentially so we were not able to you know so so for a very long time why because e-commerce like once mintra opened up and marketplaces opened up in 2014-15 then e-commerce really started booming and a lot of you know there was a lot more acceptance and at that time we were probably we were the largest brand on mintra because you know there was you know it was a new ecosystem so much demand and we could we really couldn't keep up so I think those those two years, I mean, but that's, I think I always look back and tell myself it's always a better place to be in where your demand is a lot more than uh, a lot more than the supply than the other way. So, yes, yeah, so we were okay. And then we started like, you know, so we were, like I said, working with anybody who wanted to work with us. Like anybody would come to an office and be like, I have five machines I want to work. We would, I would be like, let's go. So that's, that's how we were, we were expanding at that time. And how did you, uh, uh, 
how do you maintain consistency in quality? Because if you have so many different vendors doing it, that, that risk of inconsistent product is there, right? Like Yeah, so that was there. And we were, you know, there were a lot of cases when we would make the wrong products, somebody would cut the wrong fabric, we to reject the entire style. Very complicated and it was very challenging because there were times when we would give, you know, pieces like say 100 pieces, 200 pieces and the vendors cut the wrong fabric for the wrong style. And uh, I can't do anything, right? These are manual human mistakes. And also because we hadn't raised too much capital. Uh, we just done, by then we done a one, we done kind of one angel round from Indian Angel Network. It was very, it was, you know, about one and a half crores. It wasn't like any kind of big amount. And so we had to be very capital conscious in terms of, you know, how we were kind of scaling up. So these small hits were also huge, but quality was a concern and ensuring consistency was, was a concern. And we would do manual checks. So I was, I would, I would, you know, once we would get pieces in-house, I was happy to do, you know, out of 50% checks myself, like take out the garments, see if it looks okay. Again, not a not a technical person. I couldn't check like a hundred things, but I could see and say if this garment's going to look okay and fit okay. And I think if that was, that could pass, like it could pass my eye, I was, we were broadly okay. That this is, this is going to be okay. And again, this is a time when we could afford, we could afford quality checkers. We could afford like, you know, top quality people. So this was all done on, like really done based on common sense. I'm like, I'm a consumer. If I think it's looking okay, I would assume most women would think it's looking okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, 2016, you raised your first big round, right? Like a $2 billion Series A. So uh, by that time, what kind of numbers were you doing? Like, what was your... Yeah, uh, yeah. So we were were by then almost at about uh, one and a half, two crores a month. So I think the year that we raised uh, capital, we, we closed at about 25 crores net sales, broadly about 35 on GMV. And uh, and by then, and even, you know, because I've been a banker, my thought was also to say that, you know, we don't want to get like large funds early on, which is the exact reason why we didn't get anybody sooner than that. And, you know, get to a basically a minimum uh, minimum level of traction, uh, ensure that product market fit is kind of broadly proven, and then look at raising money. So that's that's exactly what we did. So by then, we'd reached uh, a good scale. And from, you know, the six years back, at that point, it was probably amongst the largest kind of online first women's wear companies and we were like, you know, things are looking good and it's time to get a good fund and uh, found amazing partners in Anand. So I think and India quotient. So yeah, so that was the, the first capital raise that we did. Uh, what was your uh, pitch to them that uh, this, uh, the total addressable market is massive here, more people will move online and yeah, so someone reminds me, actually, of my plan that I presented. Someone, in fact, one of the investors reminded me, uh, you know, a few weeks back was to say that this is about, uh, you know, it's of course a 5 billion uh, plus opportunity and uh, it's, it's a massive bucket. And we can reach a billion dollars in like four years from now. So that's essentially what my pitch was, which also said we're going to go from zero to like 500 stalls in three years or four years. And, and it was so funny because, you know, one is so naive, right? Like, you know, it was early, we had not raised any capital. And my thought was that if without any money we can get here, then of course, if we have a couple of million in the bank, then there's absolutely no reason for us to, uh, you know, quickly scale. So that was the pitch. Yes, it was to say that, you know, we are going to build the largest brand and this market is, uh, you know, there's there's nothing here. It, it looks super attractive. So yeah, that was that was a pitch. And I did pitch too, I think if I remember correctly, like in a parallel way, but maybe at least 30, 40 investors. And uh, of course, every time we would pitch, this is, this is women's fashion, right? So we would pitch, they would be like, okay, how do you differentiate? I would be like, okay, how do I explain to you that why is my dress different than the dress that your wife wears or your girlfriend wears or your secretary is wearing right now? 
super challenging and at the end of one one hour they would say okay i will talk to my one of these secretary slash girlfriend slash wife i will ask them to order i will take their feedback and if they like it, we will get back and like, exactly this in this order and every time i would be like seriously like you know i i sat here last 60 minutes told you everything we're doing about supply chain fast fashion but you're telling me i'm going to ask my secretary to order and i'll come back to you then so So yeah, so I mean that's what happens when there are no no women in the VC industry, right? Everybody who's building a business that's super super women oriented, they uh, they uh, you know, I mean if you're not in the field, you don't understand the product, right? Fundamentally. So yeah, so lots of pitches at that time. Every single pitch to men, and in India, Pushan, we found a, a a partner who was a woman trainer, and I think uh, that's what uh, that's what changed things for us. Wow, amazing. Okay. How did you uh, solve the logistics and returns issue? Like that ecosystem was not there, right? Like today, uh, there are a lot of like third-party services, and you can just plug them in. But uh, at that time, how did you solve that? No, so uh, I think even then there were basic things like I mean, picking up the product from the customer's house. Um, those kind of uh, facilities had started. The other thing that we did is we wanted to ensure that. If People are returning products. Like, why are they returning it, right? And how can we improve the fits for future? So, from a process orientation perspective, we were able to kind of pick up products from people's house using a third-party logistics guy. Mm-hmm. You're working with courier companies, basically, courier companies, to yeah, yeah. deliver pickups, all of that. Absolutely. And we started a, an in-house return center very early on in our journey, wherein anything that was coming in, we were really looking at it, doing hundred percent, like hundred percent check to say that why is this return. Is that you know, and and taking that data from consumers. So is there a size? Is there a pattern? And then we would use that data to ensure that in future, at least one that product is fixed, and the future from a sizing perspective, we keep correcting that. So that data we started collecting, which we continue to do till date and act on it essentially. So that was something that we were collecting. But yeah, returns. Uh, you know, in this industry, is is huge option. Like for women's, for example, on Mitra for women's, where it's at about thirty five percent return. Now, if if one third of your products are coming back. Then of course your logistics costs, all your costs, kind of your P and L goes to the toss. So that is uh, that is a challenge that uh, you know everyone's facing in in the in the women's wear space. But again, I mean, lots of things happening from our end at least around how can we improve design, how can we improve size charts, how can we tell people what size they should wear, uh, etc. To improve this experience. Mm, okay. Okay. So uh, you told me you told investors that this is like a fast fashion uh, opportunity. Uh, what does it mean to be fast fashion? And as opposed to what, like, yeah. So you know, fast fashion. I think the basic. I mean, what fast fashion means is that there are two, three things. Like there are two metrics for fast fashion. One is that your your turnaround is super quick, which is to say that I'm launching hundreds of styles every month, and this number could be hundred for somebody. It could be as much as five thousand for somebody like a Shein, for example. So I'm launching hundreds of styles on a monthly basis, and which and I'm launching it based on small quantities. So, hundred styles, five fifty pieces; ten thousand styles, hundred pieces, depending on your scale. And fundamentally, from a consumer sentiment perspective, it is to say, if I I either buy it now, otherwise I'm not going to get it. So that is essentially what the that's that's the first metric of fast fashion. And the second is on saying that how can I be so quick to the market that if a trend is spotted, right? Like there there are runways and a trend is spotted, I can put that trend on the shelf or on my website in like say two weeks. So there's panel fashion week happening. You see what the designers are doing, and you're able to translate that in two weeks and put it on the on the shelf. Now, 
when I started, when we started talking about that in India, that did not exist. There was like, you would call and talk to vendors. They would be like, okay, I will give this to you in 120 days. Yeah. <laughs> like, we are doing 120 days because it's going to be everywhere by then. And we would tell them, no, we want it in two weeks or three weeks. And and, and, and that thought itself was so bizarre uh, to most people in India, and especially, you know, Noida and where we worked, right? And they would be like, this is impossible and these girls are crazy. So that is basically exactly what we would hear all the time. And which is when we started saying, can we do some part of it ourselves? Which is, if if vendors can't turn it around, what do I need to do to do it? So some part of the ecosystem actually over time, which is buying fabrics, making you know quick quick design turnaround, all of that we started moving in house. So over time, while we were buying kind of outright or end to end from outside, we started essentially in housing techniques so that we could move to this fast fashion model because nobody in India could do it. So this uh, two billion fundraise would have helped you bring more things in house, like what you did. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, till then we were you know we'd hardly raised half a million. We were. Absolutely running like a, you know, we're 25, 30 of us doing a 15, 20, 25 crore turnover. And literally, I think I was probably, you know, working seven days and 14 hours a day and, and also loving it. So, you know, when I was a banker, I thought like if I could work like this as a banker, like there is nothing that could be more difficult or challenging. And then I became an, then I became an entrepreneur. And then I was like, okay, I think, you know, when you're in a job or you're a banker, you can still sleep for five or six hours peacefully <laughs> when you're an And especially, I think, in the first few years till you kind of set, that's all, like, it's it's life, right? Like, and it, like, it continues to be till date. But especially for the first five, six years, I think that's all that I could think of. And I was, you know, and you gave Falguni's example, right? So, and I was just thinking that I, you know, for me, because I didn't have anything else, right? I was not married. I didn't have kids. I didn't have anything else. It was just so natural. I could do it all day, all night. I don't know how, I mean, I'm sure it's super challenging for people who do have like, you know, other responsibilities to be an entrepreneur in the early years. And uh, I was lucky that I did it when I was super young and I didn't have to think of anything else except work. And uh, that kind of kept me going. Otherwise, I don't know how many times I would have thought of like going back to a vendors and being like, can I, should I get my job back? Yeah, yeah. So uh, tell me uh, how you utilize that $2 billion. Like, did you start hiring designers? Like, did you start keeping an inventory of fabric and all of that in-house or like? Yeah, so actually we did two large things, which we had not done till then. One was that we started, we, till then we only had one brand, which was called Fab Alley, which was our Western web brand, which is the brand that we started with. And uh, we had also started identifying kind of spaces in the ethnic wear market. Again, as consumers to say that, where is the brand which is say today's modern ethnic wear brand, right? We, you know, every brand that existed has been there for decades. It was a brand that I could go to, my mom could go to, my grandmom could go to. And that does not happen in Western wear, right? So we said that, where are the new age ethnic wear brands? Those didn't exist. And can we build something there? So I think we couldn't have moved till we had capital. Because of course, when you're on half a million, you can't do everything. So after we did this round, we started our second brand, which is called India, I-N-D-Y-A, which is our ethnic wear brand. And India today is actually the larger part of our business, grown extremely well over the last five years. And that is something that we identified. So that was the first thing that we used the capital for, to say that let's let's do what we've been wanting to do, which is start India and start branched off family in India, separate kind of Western and ethnic wear brands. So that was the first big use of capital. And that also helped us then again scale from this 25 to next year 50 to 90 so the the journey post 2016-17 has been till COVID happened 
and I'm sure you'll get to that. But but till then, those three four years were essentially just doubling revenues every year by doing you know by adding this. So one was India. The other thing which we changed was we started offline. So for the first five years of our journey, we were only online, only selling through our website and marketplaces. And now we had capital to be able to say that can we try three four stores? Can we go to some large format stores, say like you know say a Shopper Central, some of these, and start that? And you know by then we'd also reached say about forty five fifty crores in revenue. And I knew that, you know, continuing this journey only online is well, often with 98, 97, 98 percent of the market at that time was <clears throat> was going to restrict scale at some point. So we said that while we, you know, it was new for us, it was offline is a completely different business. It's a completely different way of thinking. But we, we said we've got to learn it and we've got to start that journey. So 2017, after our fundraise, we started offline as well. So now we had Fab Valley, we had India, we had online and we had offline. And that's how essentially the business started growing from there on. Okay. Okay. So uh, India was also fast fashion, but your products would have been like, say, Salwar Kameez and uh, like like that kind of uh, casual Indian wears, not not like marriage stuff. So it was actually, actually it was exactly the marriage stuff. Basically, oh, the, the, not the marriage okay. stuff, it was the festive stuff. Mm-hmm. And the, why we did that was because we said that, you know, while in the daywear segment, which is kurta is what you wear to work, there were players, right? There were players like WB Bar, etc., who were scaled up, who were doing okay. And then we said, but in the festive space, not marriage, but festivity, celebrations, in that space, there is nobody in the country. It's only unorganized. So if, if you want to buy something, we'll go to your neighborhood boutique, Chani Chow, Karol Bag, those kind of places. So then we said that where are high street brands for festive wear? And that's where the market really existed. So what we actually did was we said what designers are giving to you at like 50,000 plus, we'll make it at 2,000, like 3,000. Not copies. It's of course made 100% designed by us. But create that whole ecosystem, which is to say that, you know, let's build really new age, very modern festive wear, which you can wear to festivals, kitty parties, pre-wedding functions, like any of those. And let it be modern and new age. So that's that's what India's uh, philosophy is. Mm, okay, interesting. Okay, and uh, like between these two, what is the uh, average order value? Like, what purchase from a customer? Like, like, which one gives you a higher average order value? So India is higher because India is, uh, you know, it's it's a festive wear product, while Sabali is more casual wear product. So India's average order value in our stores is at about five thousand. So, so typically people buy two products at a time. So that's where India is. Uh, Fabelli's average order value would be at about twenty to twenty three hundred. So that is basically uh, so. So the Fabelli is a much more affordable, uh, you know, uh, brand. While India is still, uh, you know, it's more occasion centric, and hence people are buying. They're okay to pay a little bit more because it's for occasion. Mm, okay. How did you build the design muscle? Because initially you told me that both of you used to like do the pattern making and the designing yourself. Uh, uh, you you must have evolved to have like because. It's your core, uh, right? If you're releasing 50 styles a month, then you really need a strong design muscle in the organization. Absolutely, Absolutely. So we started, we hired our first designer in 2015 and 2015-16. And actually, uh, so we then over time, like started building. So from one designer, today we have about 20 designers. But we started building out that muscle from then, of course, because we understood again, I mean, this whole thing around making designs by not, we had no idea, right? We were, you know, Tanmi and I, you know, we were not designers. So we, we realized that as soon as we could kind of afford to start hiring designers, we did that. They, they were all lived graduates, very smart, talented designers. And so that's been the journey. So yeah, 2015-16 is when we started. 
and uh, from one designer for Fab Alley, one for India. That was the beginning. And actually, a lot of those designers that we hired then are still with us. So they've they've really built uh, both the brands pretty hands on from nothing to uh, to where we're at now. And uh, so not just design. I mean, there was a lot of muscle to be built around uh, merchandising, sampling, you know, converting the first product to good quality, tailoring, garmenting. So a lot of the supply chain, which is essentially the backbone for fashion, had to be built. And uh, that we really started building after, in, like I said, somewhere around 2015, 16, and kept kind of strengthening that every year. Just help me understand what 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 uh, like what does merchandising involve uh, or like you said converting a design to a product what does that involve and like yeah. how, how do you do it like you know what is your way of doing it at scale yeah yeah so actually it basically starts with like say it's a monthly process it starts with the mood boards and references of what's happening globally which is to say that what are the designers doing what are people wearing on the runway. Uh, you know, what are people wearing in, from our street stand perspective? So there's a lot of references uh, that kind of come in from a mood boarding perspective. We start with mood boards, we convert them into styles, which is to say that, okay, these are my themes for this month. And I'm going to make, say, about 200 to 300 styles based on these themes. So we buy the fabrics for those. We do our own textile design. So we even make the prints ourselves, the textiles ourselves. And then we combine these two techniques, the silhouettes along with these, to make the first garment, which is all made in-house. So I have my own team who makes the first garment. So now this would be hundreds of garments every month. So we make that on a monthly basis. And then we have a poll. So we are very, you know, it's not what I decide sells. It's about what people are liking. So we have about 50 girls who are our target audience in our office itself. We call them, we do a poll. We call our sales teams. We call a bunch of people and they poll on every style. Once we've done the poll, we know what style is good, what's bad, what's selling, what's going to sell, not sell. We do buys based on that. Then will I buy like 50 pieces of a shirt or 500 or 5,000? It depends on how kind of people have liked the style. So basically that's that's in a nutshell the process. And this process has to be repeated every month. And every month you have to kind of churn out three, four, five hundred styles and ensure that at least 250, 300 are, are a success from that. Mm-hmm. Does uh, data play a role in design here? Like, like uh, you know, you would be seeing what people are browsing what they are buying and so on and so forth so so you know does that data give you insights which that determines what is getting designed a hundred percent actually so i think there are two forms of data that we we kind of use one is that we are i mean as a company we're super data led right because we started online only and when you're online first like all your thoughts are around how can i collect maximum data and kind of improve that so i think initially the first uh, the first point of data that we get is we have our own sales data right for years so I know exactly that, say, you know, for a shirt, which is black, now the color is black, the length is X, the collar looks is Y, the sleeve length is Z, uh, you know, there's this technique on that. So I have, for every product, I have 10 attributes. For every attribute, we have historical data to say black shirt in X sleeve at this price has done, went at a sell-through of, say, 60%, for example. So there is so much data available that what our team does is that they, on a monthly basis, put together the historical sales data and say, on saying these could run into hundreds of, say, data points and slides to say that this is what is moving, this is what is not moving, and these are the reasons based on mathematical kind of data orientation alone. That is passed on to the design team. And when they're designing, they take a lot, consume a lot of that data to further design. And that is the only way to improve your design efficiency over time. So that is the first kind of data point. And the second is uh, essentially that when we say that uh, you know what because you know you can't just sell what is sold you can't in fashion you can't just make what is sold in the past 
you have to make for the future as well. So the second data point that we get is we're able to, again, using third-party tools, able to say that, you know, for most people in the world, like say on an ASOS, what are the top 10 trending dresses in terms of views? And when we say that, we're able to say that based on new launches, what is doing well for brands across the world? And is that something that will work for India? And is that something that we should kind of also bring in? So both of the on, on, on the fashion side and on our own data is like kind of the back-end analysis. We're able to combine the two and that's how the collections hmm. get made. Hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, do you like uh, double down on a design that does well or is it fresh designs every month? Like No, no, we double down on northern designs that do well. Actually, that's the bread and butter of the business. So things that do well, we do a lot of colorways. We do a lot of designs that look a little bit like that, but a little different. So uh, so data is, uh, I mean, it's everything. And uh, we use that to really kind of uh, make more and more of what's selling while, of course, always maintaining a percentage of products which are completely new and kind of never seen. Okay, 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 got it. Uh, you said you have a sales team. Uh, what, what is the sales team for? Because you're selling online, right? So, uh, we're a combination of online and offline now, actually. So we have about uh, 500, 550 points of sale across the country. Uh, these are our own stores and these are with, uh, you know, department stores like Lifestyle, Shopstop, Central, uh, etc. So which is where the sales teams come in. And even for online, in fact, for like, say, marketplaces like Mintra, Flipkart, Amazon, we do have people who are, you know, part of the sales team. They talk to them regularly, etc. So almost six, 700 people now who are in the sales, uh, you know, on, on the sales side. Okay. So your retail staff is on your payroll, like uh, they are on you... payrolls, correct? Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, like, tell me about that uh, getting through COVID journey. Like, yeah. you know, twenty twenty. What was it like? Uh, what was your scale? What kind of monthly revenue were you doing? And then what happened in the next two years? Yeah. So, uh, so actually, just before it, so we done a Series B round from Elevation in two thousand eighteen. So we had raised about. Um, so this was overall, the round was almost a little less than 10 million, so about nine, you know, eight and a half, nine million. It was a combination of primary and secondary. So as a company, we never needed a lot of capital. We were capital efficient. We'd raised by then maybe about three, four million. That's it uh, to reach. And we that year when we raised capital from elevation, we'd almost touched about, we did about 120, 130 crores in GMB. So we have already fairly scaled up. And, uh, you know, by the time elevation came in, it was a more steady state business. It wasn't, you know, kind of an early stage business or anyway kind of almost again got to this by raising a few million dollars. We not, you know, we were, we were very, very efficient on the capital side. So when uh, COVID, and until now, by now, we were used to growing, like I was saying, 80-90%. Had never seen any other thing, any other kind of growth journey and things were actually going quite well. We were, India was growing very well as a brand. Our offline journey had just started two years back, so it was new, it was doing well. So things were looking, uh, things were looking very good. I was also expecting uh, my son at that time and uh, so, yeah, so I mean, things were quite aligned. I had actually planned, you know, I'm like, you know, we've got to, I've got to ensure that like I planned the kid between fundraisers. <laughs> <laughs> we've done series. <laughs> then, and like now, after that, this is the time. So, so yeah, so basically that, and it, it's the easiest, right? Because I'm like, you know, meeting, meeting, found, meeting a bunch of investors when you were kind of six months pregnant, it's harder. So I was like, you know, it's just time it, time it perfectly. So did that. So we were so, so so it was you know things were actually going quite well just before COVID. And we were um, we were all set to kind of double as we had done. And now again we had a lot more money than we'd ever had in the history of the company. 
and he also had a T one investor. So you know things were things were looking quite positive. And uh, so yeah, when COVID happened, this is uh, you know of course um, from you know early mid March when we started discussing that you know there is a possibility of uh, kind of things shutting down, all of that. And I personally, actually, I mean, I would say that I I don't think I thought in my wildest imagination that India in 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 this country anything will even close, even if it was happening in China and Europe, it started kind of shutting down. That we were like, you know, in this kind of population, this is not going to happen. No. You know, I remember sitting with a senior management team around 10th March and, you know, and we were like, you know, this is uh, India, Mito, this will not happen. You know, this is, this is okay. I mean, of course, we were, we were not prepared at all because I think um, I had, I had, like I said, never imagined this was going to happen. And then when uh, it, things actually did start closing, which is, you know, from, from mid, late March, and uh, again, we thought two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. But I think the first realization that hit me, and this is when my, my son was, you know, he was less than three months old. You know, I had a toddler, kind of an infant kid at home, sorry. So couldn't quite, uh, you know, and, and when this started sinking in, which was early, early April, March end, that was the first time I was like, actually, actually, it was like my exact feeling. We had like more than 1,000 employees. And I was like, our stores are shut. We don't, while we, you know, we had some capital, we definitely don't have enough money to be sitting at zero revenue and the losses that are going to build in the next three months are going to probably take the company down. We don't, you know, we don't have enough capital for that. And that, and of course, you know, young, really young kid at home. And so personally, I think I, you know, I was just really, uh, I was very taken aback. And I think it was probably the most challenging time that I have seen in my entire life. And uh, not just with the company, but even personally. And as I think those first, those, those two, three months, right, a lot of people were like, you know, it's great to be at home. It's great to kind of take this break. I was like, this is like, this is going to take our company down. And if we don't raise more capital quickly, because I mean, one started realizing that you don't know, you don't quite know till when this will last. And I think when that realization came in from April and May, that this could take longer than we'd expected and sitting when actually the revenue action that month was zero like actually zero like oh, from like okay even know, uh, online was uh, like online not... was closed online was shut too okay. yeah so okay. it was not essentials you were not covered in not essentials. and oh, we couldn't do yeah. masks immediately because mm. we i mean the units were all shut so i couldn't i couldn't start producing that so essentially that so so yeah so 60 days i think a lot of uh, uh, mentally challenging time and uh, the only thing that I think I was able to get myself to do was talk to my investors very very candidly and tell them that of course like you know we, we have some capital it's not going to be enough we have no idea what's happening can't even tell you they they put in money at that time in April and May in this company which nobody knew what's going to happen to right so they did that we said they were like okay let's do a convertible note let's let's put some money in and we'll see uh, we'll see how things go so I think that's a convertible note. Basically to say that like, you know, put in money today, we won't decide the valuation. And whenever we do the next funding route, we'll decide the valuation at that point. So it's so, so, so that's the only way to do a round really quickly. And, uh, you know, you can close things. So we were able to raise some money then. And I think that was like a huge relief because at least from a capital perspective, I knew that we'll be able to pass this time. And, and then the other thing, and, you know, then May and June happened, the revenue was still zero. And um, so then we started doing two, three things. One is that we, we got the license to open for masks. So we started making, uh, June made, uh, started making masks legally and illegally. 
even like things are shut, we'll find a way to do it. I, you know what? Our company is actually called High Street Essentials, which means anything that had the word essentials was allowed to operate at that time. <laughs> we got we got people to use their ID cards. And they were stopped on the road. They would just show back. And it's an essentials. Uh, allowed to do it. Oh man, basically. amazing. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's basically how we got started. We made about 50 masks quickly using the fabrics that we had. And that's what we started selling. So yeah, even if uh, the revenue was 10, 15, 20 lakhs, uh, it was still better than zero. So that's how we got started. And then we also... Do you have to lay off? Uh, because all your retail stuff was like... Uh, no, we didn't. So we just didn't. drag on your... Uh, I mean, it's, it's so just more cash words, like. Yeah, so for three months, we actually didn't. I didn't have it in me as a founder to do it. Actually, I, you know, we, we, we had limited money. I, I knew that. But I also knew that if I do it at this point, I, I can't look at myself. So I think those, those three months, at least, I've people won't find jobs. And a lot of our people, you know, about six, seven hundred people that we employ, their salaries are less than 25,000 a month. So, you know, they are, these are people who are not going to get jobs at this point, of course, in the midst of COVID. They'll have nowhere to go, and and yeah, and uh, if I like like I said, I, I I couldn't kind of justify it to myself, so we did we didn't in that time. When things got better from July, which is when uh, you know a few at least online had started opening up, uh, offline was still closed. Um, you know till September October, we essentially then I knew we had to do something because big bazaar, all of these people, uh, you know, sorry, big basket, uh, you know, done. So all of these people had started hiring by then. So, so then, then we said that, all right, for people who we absolutely have to let go, which weren't too many, was less than 5% of our, you know, overall workforce, we will ensure that we get job, like we get them placed. But I also told them, I think actually that in six months, we're going to get the business back and we'll offer everybody, like every person a job back in this company. And it's up to you to take it or not, but we're going to do it. And we had to lay off like people in July, but by December, maybe or January, I think we had given every person an offer to come. So I think that is something that I, you know, I just kind of couldn't do at that point. So yeah, it was, I mean, that was probably one of the the hardest things that I have done in addressing the whole team in that town. Well, I mean, I still have memories of that and I think that was probably one of the most challenging things of COVID. Mm-hmm. Okay. That must have been a pretty tough town house. It was. I probably I, I still remember what I even said. So I think yeah, it was it was challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, I think I just actually knew. I knew that uh, it's a matter of time, and uh, mm-hmm. we find a way. And in six mm-hmm. eight months, so once mm-hmm. things get better, we'll be able to get these people back. So yeah. So what did the revenues bounce back to? Like by December January, when you offered everyone a job back? So we were at about seventy percent pre COVID by then, and uh, as a company also, uh, you know, FY uh, twenty to twenty one. Uh, we we did almost seventy percent of our sixty five percent of our revenue, even though the first six months were almost kind of zero. So uh, so we did bounce back. We did a few things. One is that while we were already online first, we of course because of that that really helped us because even with the stores closed, we could push the pedal on online very quickly. While if we were an offline first company, it would have taken me one two years just to mentally kind of align to the online model. So we were able to do that. So we started building online very aggressively, and not just in India, internationally. So we went live on Amazon, Nam, she's Alora, cross marketplace in the entire world. And we were like, if, if enough is not selling in India, let's ensure that it's selling across the world at least. So we did. And that's, that's something that really kind of helped us take back the revenue. And I think we also started pivoting the products. We were making loungewear now, like pajamas, hmm. uh, suits. Hmm. And More uh, work from home products, basically. Yeah, you could, you hmm. could wear it home. 
and these were things that we had again not done before and we are a fashion company we didn't know how to you know kind of we we hadn't made like you know pajamas before but then we said that's what's selling and that's, that's what we'll make so we started making loungewear masks everything that was relevant at that point for that audience we essentially started making that and that's that's what helped us get the revenue back quickly okay 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 so uh, what what today what are you at like what's your uh, this year what do you think you, like what to be your ERR like yeah so we left it close to about 300 crores plus uh, from a gross sales perspective and uh, this is something that again uh, you know we're also moving a lot like you know a lot towards profitability uh, ensuring that you know we we kind of as we kind of build in the next 3 4 years we we're also super profitable cash flow positive all the right metrics on the balance sheet so we're being very very conscious of that and while growth is still happening at 40 50% plus level but now as a founder and you know given what we've seen in covid we really want to build a company like which is super super kind of cash flow like if it's sustainable and some a company that can make kind of an impact so it doesn't need to be a you know company that's continuously raising funding raising capital we've just done a small round right now we've raised about you know about 5 5 6 million and with that the idea is to say that can we you know even if we don't raise any money after this we should be in a good place Wow. Okay. What are the economics of a fashion business? Like, you know, there would be a certain revenue. There would be some amount of returns which cut down the revenue. Then there would be some cost of production, and uh, like, just help me understand that. Like, yeah. Yeah. So fashion essentially starts with uh, you know sales, overall gross sales. Then there are returns, which are typically for us about early twenties, uh, early twenties okay. at a business level. So, hmm. so, so. And what's the normal uh, like in the market like? Yeah, so it would so often just not there no returns uh, because oh, right. people try and buy online. Mm-hmm. We are about thirty thirty five percent. So net net at business level because we're almost half and half online and offline. So net net it would come to say about twenty percent or so twenty twenty. So that's why we would be at company level, and then there's about five six percent tax. So net net, so about seventy percent seventy five percent of your overall sales are your net sales, and then there is uh, cost of goods sold, which is your gross margin. This is this basically. Um, cost of goods sold is essentially the product that you're making. The cost of that, right? The fabric cost, the tailoring cost, etc. So that for us again remains, you know, about thirty percent, or maybe about twenty-five, twenty-six percent of the overall price of the product. So we put that in, which is called the first gross margin, like net net of it is a gross margin. And then you have all the expenses, which would be your salaries, which would be your, you know, rental cost, facility, marketing, all of those things, which are items before this, and then you get to EBITDA and profit. Okay, and what is your uh, EBITDA like? Gonna be uh, what's it going to be like this year? So actually, we're targeting to break even this year. So uh, hopefully on track for that. So that's the first step, and then ideally, you know, start kind of getting to at least a five six percent profit from next. What are you doing to become profitable? Uh, are you like focusing on costs? Are you focusing on growing revenue, re- reducing returns? Like like what are those levers that you can play yeah, with? Yeah. So there are two three things that we're doing Akshay. One is that uh, we have actually uh, for India we also launched our wedding wear business uh, which is a high ASP high price product at about 10 to 15000. Now here um, you know this is a business that essentially has inherently has higher margins. Uh, it's a business where people are okay to kind of pay slightly more the product quality is top class. So this is something that we're building out and this is a piece that's going to become almost 30% of India's business by next year this time. so this should help us kind of take up the margin profile overall the other thing that we are doing is we focusing on international sales a lot so us for example is almost 40% of my online business and uh, you know the more we are able to kind of sell to nris again they're not you know price consciousness there is not is 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 much lower than what it is in this country 
so essentially that and even the product, the quality, we're able to kind of send higher price products to them. We're working with a lot of designers on collaboration, which which do very well for the NRI market. So that is something that we're building on. And not just on D2C, even like we've become large brands for Zalora, Namshi, global marketplaces. So we're essentially building that piece out. So as international becomes like a larger part of our business, maybe gets to about, uh, again, 25-30% of the online business, the margin profile there becomes much better. So these are the two key things from a top-top distribution perspective. Third, of course, is that post-COVID, offline is getting back on track. And offline is a super profitable channel. Uh, because because there are no returns? There are no returns and discounting is low because of these two things. So as offline gets back on track now, post-COVID life is kind of settling in. I mean, recession is playing a bit of a role. Sentiment's not bad. But hoping, you know, over time, this is going to get okay. So from that perspective, as offline becomes a larger part of our business again, uh, so again, I mean, that that also starts building out. So again, the overall margin should go up. So net-net multiple things across the board. So to to kind of start uh, moving up the needle on the profitability. Mm, amazing. What is your split now? Uh, offline versus online? Or by the end of the year? Okay. Half and half. So online would be about early 50s, 52, 53%. And offline is 47, 48%. And in online, how much is through your website? How much through marketplaces? Almost 60, 65% is through our website. So we are That's very high, heavy, oh. uh, you know, high D2C focus. That's amazing. Which would give you much richer data insights. You'd be able to retarget those customers, do upselling. And... 100%. The sentiment, I mean, we're able to also understand what people are buying. Why are they buying it? We're able to talk to our customers, right? And And those are calls that across the company, everybody makes in terms of just talking to the customers, understanding you know, why are they returning things? Why are they, why do they like the brand, etc.? So because otherwise in online, you have no customer interface, right? So you can't, you're also, if I'm only selling through Mintra Flipkart, I have no idea who I'm selling to, where I'm selling to. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge kind of black box, but on D2C, you have so many data points. So definitely building that piece out is, is very helpful from getting like the right data for us. Yeah. I, uh, how do you keep on track of this customer listening as the CEO? Do, is there like a, particular report that you look at, uh, some sort of dashboard, uh, what is your way of uh, understanding customer insights and, you know, like keeping your ears to the ground, kind of? Yes. So, uh, actually, there are two, three things. One is that we measure NPS very, very closely. uh, And uh, here we do, in fact, like our NPS is not like a monthly exercise. We essentially, every time our order is delivered, post five days, the customer gets that email. And we have like a lot of response on that. So, basically, that is the first metric to save there is any change on that, how, I mean, how people are perceiving the brand, the service, the quality, all of those things. Below that email, we have a bunch of parameters to say that what is it that you like or dislike about us. And when they're able to tell us that, so this is from a purely data perspective, I'm able to get data on a weekly basis to say that how do people, you know, is there any change? Are they liking it, not liking it with the reasons? So this is from a data perspective. Then, you know, teams across the board for our company talk to customers. Everybody's allocated some customers who they need to speak. And mm. and then we get these are like customers who triggered a return or just like randomly selected return okay. no return doesn't matter these are these are randomly selected customers some could be uh, repeat customers some could be first time customers to understand what do they like about the brand what do they not like the service the product the fit all of that and this is the senior management team as well and then we get together essentially and then we're able to kind of say that you know what are people saying about us how do we change that improve that all of that. We've also once in a while commissioned reports from people like Netsir, all of that to speak to the customers and come back to us with, you know, detailed findings on what they think about the brand and, you know, improvement areas. So across the board, bunch of things are done. 
but this is something that I feel uh, we need to do a lot more of because I think the more we know the customer, the better we'll be. And uh, very conscious effort now to uh, do more of this. Yeah. What are the uh, things you're doing on social media? Like, because social media is also like a powerful way for both uh, like marketing and listing to customers. Yeah, so social media, we're doing like a, we, you know, so we were actually amongst the early ones to work with influencers in the country. And we started doing this about five years back when there was a very new culture in India. So for us, for fashion, like influencer marketing is huge. And that's Who are the influencers in the fashion space? Like anybody I would somebody have like, I, I don't know if you would have heard of them, but say somebody yeah. like Masu Meenawala, Kumal Pandey, Pritika okay. uh, Kurana. So some of these, uh, you know, people, they have followers and millions and they're also very... These are like Instagrammers? Followers. Instagrammers mostly. And then they also have YouTube presence. So essentially Instagram and YouTube. So basically, so we're working with, and we typically work with 200, 300 influencers in a month. So we wow. work with a lot of them. They make content for us. So that is a huge part of our social media strategy. Where, uh, you know, they through their own Instagram and our, our Facebook, Instagram, etc. We're kind of pushing out that content. Uh, and that also, the reason why you have such a high uh, direct uh, like sales on your own website. Because 100%, 100%, this influencer marketing would be... Right. Traffic is getting diverted to the website. Absolutely. So, so, so that's one. And the second thing that we do is we also talk like we have like amazing women in our office, in our sales teams, etc. Right. So we do a lot of like real women series. Where people in our office, you know, talk about a product, they wear the product, you know, we do like when they're going out, they talk about it. So a lot of, so one is you know, you work with celebrities or influencers and the second is we work with people who are wearing your product, whether they're employees or consumers uh, or customers. And we, we essentially work with a lot of them. So a lot of the content on our social media will be, you'll see there'll be women from our office, which is amazing, right? So we don't need to go and we, they just, they just, they're, they're people who love the brand and there's nobody who can better kind of advocate than them. So that is the other thing that we do. So these two, three things besides the regular social media, we do a lot of giveaways. That's something that does well for us. So besides the regular things, but just working with this bunch, I think people who are, who are uh, our users, that, that really helps. We also get, uh, you know, actually a lot of, because India, especially as a brand, because of festive wear brand, people love sharing pictures, right? So if I'm, if, you know, if I'm wearing something at a wedding or for Diwali, I would love to share that picture in terms of how it's kind of, because India is about celebrations and joy and about kind of bringing people together. So I think so from that perspective, I think a lot of our customers share their pictures when they're born in India. This could be for something as beautiful as a baby shower. It could be for, and, and this is across the world now because we have such a large NRI base. So I get pictures from Washington and Boston and UK and, you know, so, so we do put out a lot of customer pictures as well, saying that this is what it looks like in real life. And I think more than the product, it's also the sentiment, right? Because India is born um, at times when you're, you know, it's always an emotion, right? Because you're wearing it for a festivity and you're kind of emotional about it. So it's it's, it's a beautiful way of kind of putting that together. Mm, amazing. You get uh, customers to like tag you or like like use a particular yeah. hashtag? Or, like... Tag us, send us pictures. We are all forms of communication, yeah. What are some of those uh, metrics which only an insider would know that you track? You know, I mean, sure. so for example, one metric in a lot of startups, I don't know if it's relevant or not, is that CAC to LTV, like, you know, customer acquisition costs versus the long term value. What are some of those metrics for your business, Lex? Uh, so, okay. So I think actually, so LTV, CAC, all of these things, all startups would be measuring at the typical finance metrics, uh, marketing metrics, actually. So this, this would all be. I mean, personally, I think these are the two, three things that are important for, for me, uh, for, for this business. One is what is the repeat rate looking like, right? So if, are my consumers coming back? 
because typically from a life cycle perspective for both fabel and india you can wear those products for at least 10 years of your life so if they're not coming back within a year at least three times we're losing them out somewhere in the journey which means they don't like the product so that for uh, for us as a business for me as a founder is a metric that you know really needs to be kind of tracked and um only only challenge in that is because we are also available through third party marketplaces we don't always have the data to map it across the consumer across the board but for our d2c our ebos for all our direct channels we're able to say how many people are coming back and if they're not we also talk to them to check why they're not so i think so that is basically the first thing which is super super critical and how do you track offline if they're coming back like you have some loyalty card or something like that or- No, we have our own data. Actually, we have our, all the systems have been inbuilt. They're built by us. So if my customers mm-hmm. coming back, I'm able to kind of we know that it's a second time customer, it's a third time customer, etc. Okay, okay, so, okay. So like at the time of billing, you take their phone number or something like we that. We have right? their phone numbers. Yes. That's correct. We have their phone number. That's a compulsory uh, input. So that's something that we have, and we're able to track that. So essentially, that's that's that that would be one super important metric for us on repeat. Uh, the other thing that's very very important for us is on returns. right which is to say that you know why are 35% people who buying my product returning it which is that either the size is not right the fabric is not right or the image is not right and and then collecting this data and kind of being on top to say that how can we reduce this over time because if you can reduce returns in a fashion business by 10% you will change the company's life in a way the pnl is going to now look very different so essentially that so these are these are the two things that are very i mean besides the regular finance and marketing metric these are the two things that are super important for our and what is your cac to ltv uh, ratio is that relevant also in your business yeah, yeah it's relevant it's relevant mm-hmm. the only thing about us like i said is my d2c is only about 30% of my business which means overall business which means 70% of my customers are going to other places to buy and i can only track cac to ltv for d2c right so even for that it's more than three times over over like an 18 to 24 month period so it's still looking good but having said that it's just for this part so if that customer is second then going to mintra and then going to my uh, to lifestyle and then go to shop with i have no way of tracking the journey so it's more relevant for athlete for business that have at least 70 80% d2c but even for us like as it still looks good so uh, i noticed in your uh, uh, funding uh, journey that you've been taking debt on a consistent basis uh, help uh, me understand if i'm a founder what is my way of thinking about when should i take equity when should i take debt Yeah, so I think um, you know besides like basic equity debt metrics, I have to say that if if your business can afford interest, and if your business uh, is at a stage where uh, the risk factor is low, then debt is the better option, right? Because you don't want to give up because equity is always going to be much more expensive. So debt, even at even at higher prices, which is say at fourteen, fifteen percent interest, which is where most startups would end, uh, that's that that's also better than giving equity because the cost of equity is definitely more than fourteen, fifteen percent. So I think hundred percent. I would say it's when you say low risk. It means you have a predictable monthly revenue. Predictable cycle. monthly revenue, absolutely. Because the thing about debt is that you 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 make monthly repayments, right? So if if your business, so for us, for example, because we have five hundred stores, we have an online business. So the difference would be we'll do eighty percent or ninety percent. You'll still do that much of your target. It's not like you'll do ten percent. Right? But if it's a business where there is huge variability or variance in revenue, it's debt becomes very expensive. because if you can't pay for 2 months then your business could potentially become bankrupt so from that perspective i would say that any business that's past the basic risk stage and like i said can afford to kind of pay back the interest debt is a better option the first few years i would always say if you can raise equity raise equity because it's it's money in the bank without any obligation to pay out 
and the founder can really focus on using the money to build the business as opposed to using the money in the short term to kind of and then having the pressure of paying back in 18 months or 24 months. So I think that would be the key kind of distance. First few years, essentially take equity, uh, build it out to a certain base, let the risk level in the business be low and then start building with debt because then your equity is also becoming more and more expensive by then. So why did you take this 5 million equity round just now? So um, actually, we essentially uh, build out our whole wedding wear, uh, you know, space. We're building out India's lux range. We, you know, so a lot of that essentially will require money. It will require inventory. It will require distribution across the board. So for that, we wanted to give it wanted to build that out aggressively. So this round is primarily for that. So basically, for like a one-time cash burn, uh, it's better to take equity. And when it's money for funding business as usual stuff, then debt is better. Yeah, so absolutely. So I think more than one time, I think for if you, you know, equity for uh, not even cash burn, if you feel that, you know, you want to, predictability is low and also the business is loss making, which means paying interest is, a, is an add-on burden on the business, then equity is much better. If the business has or will potentially start generating money in the short term, and like I said, risk is low because revenue stability is high, then debt is definitely the better option. Okay, no worries. So uh, my last question to you, uh, is there any advice you want to give to uh, aspiring founders? Yeah, I would just say actually that like, you know, if you have, if you have an idea, go and do it. Because, you know, I have over the last 10 years, I think heard at least, if not more like 100 great ideas. And then when I check with the, with the, with the person who's told me the idea after a few months, oh, what happened to it? And they said that, oh, we weren't quite sure. It's difficult at this point because I have kids, um, you know, the baggage and I, you know, and I always tell them if you can't do it now, it'll, it'll only get harder, right? It'll only get harder. So, so just like you have an idea, you know, and even if that idea is not fleshed out, even if you, if that thought is then you want to do something, just go and do it. Because, you know, what, what would you lose, right? Actually, you lose two years of your working life, three years by, by when you probably realize it's not working in worst, in worst case scenario, but you would have at least kind of done it, right? And, I mean, maybe when you're 60, 70, you'll be like, I at least tried. As opposed to being like, oh, I had a great idea and I never tried. So that's what, I mean, it's cliche, but that's what I would say. Like, you know, you think of something, just go and do it. Like, I would not change anything about the last 10 years. And they've been difficult years. There's been lots of ups and downs, but I would not take anything back. And, uh, and that's when I would say, like, take that chance and go and do it. And if it doesn't happen, so be it. But nobody ever regrets, nobody ever regrets being an entrepreneur. I've not heard it from <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to this show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at thepodium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in. 